last 25 minutes of this movie are pure chaos. It's a complete free-for-all. You see people throwing Molotov cocktails. People are running around on fire. There's attempted rape in the middle of the street. There's cars crashing into each other and exploding. There's people flying off roofs, which gives us these gloriously terrible dummy shots. There's a guy running around in the street. One of the creeps is carrying a toilet plunger. What's he going to do with that? I have no idea. (laughs) The Epic Film Guys Podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Epic Film Guys podcast coming to you on Livestream for the Cure Day. The first full day of the fourth annual Livestream for the Cure is today at 10 o'clock Eastern. So if you're listening to this when it first drops, make sure you tune in over at twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys. We have a ton of amazing content, 48 hours coming to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute for a future immune to cancer. But gentlemen... Oh, I'm not alone, by the way. I'm Nick, and I'm joined by these two amazing guys, these two beautiful, beautiful men. How are you guys doing tonight? Fabulous. We're going to be talking about, well, I think, a masterpiece of cinema. You know what, Everyone should think masterpiece. Everyone needs to think masterpiece. And Loisos, there was that very strange uncomfortable silence there because for once I wanted to let you talk first I realize how upset you must get when I talk over you constantly well, every you're doing it right week. now so boom oh, I am <laughs> boom oh, oops I'm teasing I'm just used to having you jump right in Justin but uh, yes I am here the sauce the loy sauce now you go and die ready willing and able and over, over to you, Justin Esquivel. Yes, Ew. the human fucking troll doll, which is exactly what I was called during last year's live stream for the cure. He because loved of it my... so much, he went back to it again. I got the green back. You know, hey Justin, whatever. you know your hair. Mm-hmm. It's all green. Uh huh. Well, I got so excited about that news about the possibility of a David Ayer Suicide Squad director's cut yes i'm please for i'm going all the green. love of god i you know and, and of course this comes off the heels of of after snyder snyder did he did a man of steel watch party kind of thing last That's correct week, last yep. week and then he announced at the end of it that of course the the fabled snyder cut of justice league is going to be coming to hbo max next year haters which, suck a mother fucking Dude. Which can I can I make a point here? Like people like can I make a point here? Just very briefly. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but you've got like all these people all over social media who are like, why does he need twenty million dollars to get this Snyder cut out? I thought the Snyder cut existed. It's like it does exist, but then Visual they effects. threw away like eighty percent of the footage and Whedon reshot a whole bunch of it, so a lot of it's un finished like they finished production in 2016 Snyder didn't leave the movie for another like nine months like they were still like deep in post-production before Snyder actually left the movie there's a work print of the movie like it's not like they're gonna get all these actors back and shoot like a whole bunch of fucking shit yeah they're like, not at all they're the not coming exists back. people all the footage exists but none of the effects were done 
on a lot of this footage. And then, you know, like, get, just, just stop. Like, I, I, you could, okay, fine. Like, you had your moment. Like, you got to fight with all the release of the Snyder Cut people. It's never coming out. It sucks. It's stupid. Okay, now it's coming out. Now just go away. Just don't watch it. No, just no, I mean, leave it alone now. They can't accept that they were wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and that's really what it is. It's it's it's, it's like it's just they just want to argue and they just they just want to fight about. It. Oh, well, why do they got to do this? Why do they got to spend this money? Why aren't they putting it out right now? I thought the cut already existed. It's and I see people like people whose opinions I actually value, like on Twitter, saying this kind of shit. And it's like, I know you know how the film industry works, and I know how you know how the filming like production schedule, post production, and all that works. So I know you're not this ignorant. So you're literally just doing it to be an asshole. You're literally just doing it to shit on this thing. Well, and Nick, they can't accept that they were wrong. Like yeah. I said, that, that people can't be wrong exactly. in, in today's social it's, climate. It's just and- getting made for fans. Like it's it's at this point, like it's just going to be for fans for people who want to see. And some people, I know, Loisos is one of them. Doesn't like Man of Steel. Definitely doesn't like Batman versus Superman. You know, there's a lot of people that just don't care and don't want to see this, but there are a lot of people who do care and who do want to see it. So that's great. Just leave us alone now. Let us wait and have our goddamn movie. Just don't watch it. Just shut up and go away. They will watch it, though. That's the thing. Oh, they will Everyone's going to watch it. And then they'll bitch you know? and say it was terrible anyway. They will. They've but already made also, up their minds about it, whether they I, see it or not. I ribbed you a little bit in, in our fan group, the Hopesters Dumpster, kind of picking on you because every single time there'd be news about, you know, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, I would send it to you. And I, I know you'd get annoyed by it by some point because there'd always be something new every single week regarding it. And your response was always, I'll believe it when I see it. And, I, you know, I twisted your words and fucked around and was like, nope, you were a naysayer to an extent. But, I mean, I always believe. Like, th- I think that when the, the picture came out, when Snyder posted like a picture of like film canisters and I sent that to you like, yeah, what's that? But the reality of it is I never doubted that it, that the footage existed. I'm not saying that Snyder never made his version. I was just go- going to be patiently waiting for them to release it because Justice League was such an unmitigated disaster. Um, I, it really was. I, I debated whether Warner Brothers would. I mean, it might have been like a Richard Donner cut situation of Superman 2 when we saw the version like 20, 30 years later. But the fact that we're getting it now, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'll watch it. Um, you know, I, I based on my opinions of Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, I'm not holding out hope that it'll be the greatest thing ever. But I know for a fact that it will be at least cohesive. So or at least more cohesive than what ended up in theaters in November of 2017 or whenever justice league came out. So it'll get me to sign up for a free trial of HBO max. Absolutely. I'm just excited to see it finally happen. And I mean, good for Zack Snyder too. Good for Zack Snyder. I just want to see the man's vision, man. Yeah, literally like he, he put his heart and soul into all three of those fucking movies. And then we got a, a, you know, a hodgepodge of a movie and nothing against Joss Whedon at all. I mean, he's it's made some Whedon's bad mistakes fault. in his it career. Is, it, it's it, not, but it, it's studio heads. Like, yeah. Two you know how Warner Brothers is with DC is. properties. He's not there anymore. Cause he got me too. But you know, uh, you know, it, it's Warner Brothers executives who did not want to postpone the release date of the movie to let Whedon actually do a, like they basically just, they put him under the heel of their boot. You know, they, they, there was nothing that he could have done to save that movie. Cause they didn't give him the time that he needed to do it. They wanted him to completely that, yeah. rewrite and reshoot like X amount of it 
not enough of it to get the director credit. So it still ended up getting credited to Snyder, even though he went in and reshot. And then even this, even the scenes that Snyder shot, like you, you remember that first trailer, like that scene, the battle that's in like Russia or wherever, like the colorization, everything was completely different. You know, like even the stuff that Snyder shot, they completely went in and, and like they, they, they changed like the, they changed the aspect, like they zoomed in on frames and stuff like that. Like everything was, was done. Just remove every single time that flex smiles and I'll be happy. That's my key thing with this movie. I love Batfleck. I'm a huge Batman fan. Ben Affleck's Batman is my second favorite on screen cinematic Batman of all time, only behind Keaton. And Whedon fucked with that, with what he did with the character and his cut of the movie. I know how Snyder sees Batman brutal, brutish, fucking mean spirited, slightly murderous at times, which is fine with me. He's Keaton on steroids, for God's sake. But I want to see that version of that character that Ben signed up to play in that movie. And we're finally going to get it. So for me as a Batman fan, first and foremost, I'm excited and I, I hope it's good. I really do hope it's well, good. The best part is, is, you know, we're not going to have to deal with a two hour movie that tries to introduce like five or six new major characters and tell this whole huge, massive plot like that was never intended to be because it was always only intended to be like a part one of like this two part, like massive epic. And we may never, ever see anything. And like I had I was getting into arguments on Twitter and I know better. Trust me. But I was getting into arguments with people on Twitter about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this means we're going to get a bat the Batfleck Batman movie. This means we're going to get Justice League. Part yeah, like, there's no, rumors that yeah, there's no, rumors I've heard. Nick, people have sent me a message, a couple of messages over the weekend, literally of YouTube channels stating that due to this, Pattinson out as Batman, Affleck oh, yeah. bat it, bat, you know, back in as Batman. That that's not happening. Listen, here's it's, here's what I'll not say. Not even possible. Um, Affleck's never coming back to the role of Batman. Affleck left the role. Like, period. Like, it, the, Matt Reeves' film is notwithstanding. Like, even, like, maybe if they had nothing else in production and they really conned him into coming back. But he had some dark times back during that period. So, you know, that was one of the biggest reasons why he walked away from it. That notwithstanding, like, a Batman film is never going to happen with Affleck. Justice League 2, like, unless, and I and I mean, there's the hugest caveat, that unless this Miracle. is, like, the most well-received film of all time in history, which it won't be, which it just won't be, because there's some people that Snyder, like, they don't like his interpretation of these characters, and they will just never be on board with what he does. Saucy. He's one of them. That guy up there in the corner, the most handsome man in the podcasting realm, the that god is, of podcasting that himself. That, that, he that don't like it. Beautiful like son it. of a bitch. But and I forgot. I'm sorry. Oh. I forgot to get the Colby Mac in there. But, you know, that notwithstanding, like there would be the smallest, slightest sliver of a possibility that we'd get some kind of continuation. It's not going to happen, though. I really think what we'll get is enough people will watch it enough i think the reaction to it the reception to it will be good enough that snyder will be able to get some kind of money to do maybe some kind of comic book run or whatever for the rest of like his story like you'll be able to like he'll do like a comic book or he'll do like an animated thing and get some of the actors back to do the voices of their characters or whatever we're not going to get a full live action justice league part two continuation of whatever the snyder could it's just never going to happen like 20 million dollars is enough like the the buzz behind 
this cut of Justice League is big enough now to justify a $20 million price tag, but you're talking a blockbuster of this scale is like a $300 million price tag. Warner Brothers is never ever given $300 million to Zack Snyder to make a superhero movie. It's never going to happen because then people are immediately going to shit on it just like they did with the other ones. It's it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry just to give break me, your heart, just, but yes, I just want to see mustache less no CGI mustache Cavill black suit as Superman. Cavill. Yeah, that's black suit Cavill. That's what we're all waiting for. Fuck yes. Thank you so much. Like again, we don't have much to look forward to in the movie world right now. A lot of things are uncertain. And that's why for me, when this news broke, it was really exciting. I'm like something really cool to look forward to that. I don't have to go to the theater for that. Mm-hmm. I know is a sure thing now. Uh, it's not a rumor. And you know, we were all disappointed in some way. Even the people that I know, even my boy, Sam from the bat fan addict podcast. Um, you know, he's a, He's a, he's a defender of Justice League. He he says he's a fan, but deep down, there is always going to be that part of disappointment that it's not the film it could have been, you know, yeah. and which we'll brings us back around like. to, you know, when you mentioned the a director's cut of Suicide Squad, like I still remember like spring, summer 2016 when we were talking about that movie. Like when they when that movie got screened, like test screenings and whatnot, before Ayer went back in and like they had to do those massive reshoots, like all that stuff. Like that film, that version of the film apparently was like really, really well received by test audiences and whatnot. Then for whatever reason, after the reaction to Batman versus Superman, which is a lot of what happened with Justice League as well. The studio got in there and the studio like forced all these changes into the movie. And then we got that that literally unmitigated disaster. You well, know? Also, I'm sure you remember some of the elements they said that they they weren't comfortable with having that were in Ayer's original cut. I, I don't remember exactly what those elements were. OK, so maybe I'll fill you in then. I assume that you were paying attention. Teachers going I mean, I to spank have. you I with the belt. Um, so please remind no, me. No, I mean, there was obviously, there was a lot more of Jared Leto's Joker. And the characters, their relationship, Harley Quinn and Joker, it's always been an abusive relationship. And a lot of people really didn't like the way it was portrayed. Um, they said that it was very mean-spirited. And I'm like, well, that's what it's like in the comics and cartoons and how it's always been. But they didn't want, they didn't want that. That's literally the, the entire point of the relationship so, between them. Yeah, And like, why they included him as a character in the movie in the first place. So that was one of the things that they removed. Yeah, Leto's um, Joker had a lot more screen time in, yeah, in the original cover. I mean, Ayer even went out. Went on Twitter recently and posted like a never before seen picture of Leto's Joker, that iconic scene in that one trailer that got us all excited where he's got the grenade in his mouth and half his face is burned away. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was the moment I wanted to see in that movie so, so badly. You say what you will about his version of Joker. I know he gets so much hate and he gets shit on all the time. I didn't completely hate it. I think there was a lot of potential there. We never I think he's fine as Joker, but it, the problem with his character, the problem with his Joker is that it's it's the script. The script just doesn't give him anything well, like to do. like you said in our review, and we're not going to so make he this. he feels extremely ancillary to the movie He doesn't itself. need to be in the movie. He doesn't movie. need to be in the movie in yeah. the cut that it is. So it's it's pointless that he's even in it, you know, which, you know, that was like in the original cut, like he was supposed to have a much, much bigger role, like you said. So, I mean, to wrap up on it, like, I think I would love to see. I hated, I detested Suicide Squad. It was utter and complete garbage but i would love to see what air originally planned for that movie but i will ask you guys each this in closing before we get over to something lois Oss wants to talk about that we saw recently oh yeah um which would you rather watch though right now as it stands 
the theatrical cut of Suicide Squad or of Justice League? Justice League. Absolutely Justice League. Justice League for sure. Justice League times 100. At least Suicide Squad has Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and Will Smith giving Justice a great Justice League has Amy Deadshot. Adams in it. So, I mean, I can, so, I can live with that. Justice League, Justice League has brief flashes of excitement and the team working together. Stuff you want to see in a Justice League movie. Suicide Squad is almost, aside from Margot Robbie, there's there's no redeeming factor to it. There's nothing I want to go and revisit of that movie. And I recently rewatched the extended cut of Suicide Squad, or I watched for the first time the extended cut of Suicide Squad before seeing Birds of Prey. And it just reaffirmed my opinion that it just sucks. That's that is I've never watched the whatever other cut of I because yeah, I have no interest in it. I will never ever revisit it. But if Ayer does a director's cut, yeah, I would one hundred percent. 100% get on board. But we are going to, as Justin alluded to there just a couple moments ago, swing it over to the sauce because another movie uh, got released on VOD very, very recently that he had the opportunity to check out. No, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to make him relive the horror that was Scoob, which you can go back to last Aww. week's show and listen to he and Justin uh, give a 10 out of 10 review to that movie. But uh, Saucy, <laughs> Saucy, let us know uh, what you saw and what you thought of it. So recently I had the pleasure of renting Capone. This is the third feature from filmmaker Josh Trank, who had a promising start with Chronicle until he torched his career, no pun intended, with the much maligned 2015 reboot of Fantastic Four. (laughs) Which, yes, uh, that's the appropriate reaction, Nick. The results of studio meddling, uh, you know, Trank's meltdown, which caused him to be booted from the project, uh, expensive reshoots, fan backlash, all that jazz. So Trank had such a negative experience fighting for creative control over Fantastic Four that for his comeback film, he, I think very understandably, insisted on writing, directing, producing, and editing the picture all himself. So this is Trank's vision through and through for better and slash or for worse. Hmm. So I'm going to read out the synopsis that is featured on the film's official website, because I think this is very important to read, actually, to not sway audience members or not mislead them. This is the official synopsis. Alfonso Capone, Tom Hardy, is a ruthless businessman and bootlegger who once ruled Chicago with an iron fist. When he hides away millions of dollars in a place that the feds are dying to uncover, Capone will stop at nothing to protect himself, his family, and his money. And I read out this synopsis because that that summary bears only a very pale resemblance to the movie I actually watched. <laughs> oh my god, no, I'm so glad I didn't watch this. Well, well hold on a little bit, because... I appreciate this movie on on, a, on some level. That synopsis is not the story that Trank was interested in telling with this movie. It would have been very easy to make this a traditional gangster epic. It would have been very easy to cast Tom Hardy as Capone as we see the glory days, quote, you know, the quote, glory days of Capone's life. Uh, what we get instead is a fascinating if not wholly successful deconstruction of the gangster myth. So what this movie is 
doing is taking a legendary figure that inspired, you know, a, a myriad gangsters, both in real life and in popular culture, and examining the sad, pathetic last year of his life, in which you're watching him literally decompose before your very eyes. Um, what the movie really focuses on is Capone retiring with his family, and he's under constant federal watch, and he's suffering from dementia and neurosyphilis, and his mental state is has been crippled by multiple strokes, and you're, he descends into paranoia and he loses control of his bodily functions. He's having these hallucinations as he's ruminating on his past violent deeds as the most ruthless and notorious gangster who ever lived. Now, this is this is a fascinating approach, but I don't think it would work unless you had the right actor in the role because it hinges on that magnetic central performance by Tom Hardy. This is the Tom Hardy show. And it is a completely bonkers, grotesque, go-for-broke performance that has to be seen to be believed. (laughs) It's kind of, it's as if Bugs Bunny and Danny DeVito's The Penguin from Batman Returns had a love child, and you gave that love child quaaludes. That is the performance we're talking about here. God, and I recognize. I, recommend... I kind of want to just stop his review and just go watch it before I let him finish. But <laughs> and I recommend subtitles because you literally can't understand what the fuck Tom Hardy is saying without them. Uh, but this is like Venom levels of commitment, where it's like a fully physical performance. There's no vanity involved whatsoever. This man is constantly grunting, mumbling, rolling his eyes all around, drooling, sweating, vomiting, peeing in his pants, pooping in his pants. Uh, (laughs) It sounds like he should be on this fucking show, for God's sake. Jesus. (laughs) Um, What are you trying to say? We run a classy outfit here. (laughs) He's like chopping on a cigar. And there's a part in the movie... um, where where Capone's doctor, played by Kyle MacLachlan, uh, says, I'm, uh, says to his family, I don't want him smoking cigars. It's not healthy. Give him a carrot. He won't know the difference. So for the last third of the movie, you have Tom Hardy with a carrot <laughs> hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> Is that what those photos were? Because I had no idea. I thought those were photoshopped. I Because li- I, I didn't see the movie, so I didn't no, even it's know. Real. It's real. It's real. And it's bizarre because there's like a tonal imbalance. It's like this bizarre blend because it kind of veers into comedy, whether or not it's intentional or unintentional, just because of how camp the performances. Um, but then it also has elements of like psychological thriller and Cronenbergian body horror, uh, which I think Ooh. is something that Trank is fascinated with due to what we saw in Fantastic Four. Um there's an extended sequence with like actually pretty strong visuals that evoke scenes out of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Unfortunately, the film feels very meandering. There's subplots that feel underdeveloped. There's a subplot that the the synopsis includes as if it's the main plot, but it's very much a subplot that's never resolved where and it, when you see the movie, you understand why it's not resolved, but it's not developed in which the FBI have an investigation into money that Capone may or may not have hidden. Um, and Capone can't remember where he hid it because of his dementia. So there's kind of a mystery element there with that, but that goes nowhere. And then uh, there's another subplot where he has a mistress and there's flashbacks of him with the mistress who's killed and then him trying to connect with his 
uh, illegitimate son, none of which is uh, anything that actually happened in real life. This is all invented for the movie. So yeah, this is what I was going to ask you, not to cut you off or anything, but how much of this movie is actual, like ba- actually based on real truths and how much of it is made up just for the movie, like for drama aspects? Well, I think, again, Trank is more interested in trying to explore. It's more of a character study than it is like a account of what actually happened. The last third of this movie, like none of that shit happened. Um, so there's emotional payoffs at the end that are like aiming to be poetic, uh, but they don't feel earned because they're not given enough development throughout. There's just too much going on. Um, in a way, it's kind of treading the same, similar thematic ground as Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, particularly the third act, which also deals with the decline of like once powerful mobsters. Uh, but this film has plenty, uh, precious little of The Irishman's depth. There's a good supporting cast, but Again, they're not given much to chew on. You have the continually undervalued actress, Linda Cardellini, as Capone's suffering wife, May. And then you have Noel Fisher as Capone's son. And Noel Fisher was in a show that I used to like before it jumped the shark called Shameless. And I was pleased to see him show up. But again, not really given much to do. As I said, this is the Tom Hardy show. So I struggle with this movie because it's interesting due to its bleak, almost nihilistic approach to the to the legend and the mystique and the dark appeal that Al Capone has in culture. And it's propped up by like a, a completely cuckoo bananas performance by Hardy. It's certainly anything but conventional. And I will give Trank major, major credit for attempting something different than just yet another gangster picture. Uh, but but despite the potential, the elements just did not gel together for me in a way that felt cohesive. So I'm hovering between a, a five and a six rate, uh, out of 10 rating because I think people should see the movie because of Tom Hardy's performance and because of how <laughs> it's a different approach. Um, but as a film, I'm, I think I'm going to lean more towards a five out of 10 rating for Capone. Damn. So straight question, yes or no. Should I just watch The Untouchables instead? Probably. And if someone you uploads- watch The Untouchables a- for later in the year because it's celebrating some year anniversary later this year. Uh, if, if someone uploads a highlight reel of Tom Hardy's goofier moments uh, Which to someone YouTube, will. Yeah, uh, then I would recommend watching that. Hardy will get- He'll get his he'll he'll get his spotlight shining down on him for Oscar season one of these years for something. For Who Capone. knows? <laughs> no, not for Capone. I highly doubt it. But I mean, for like Venom you know, to whatever the subtitle is about Carnage. Hey, y'all can fuck off. Venom was fine, perfectly nope. entertaining. I yeah, liked it. I can't wait for Venom two. No. Fuck yeah! I hope he jumps in another lobster tank. But thank you very much, Boy Sauce. Damn it! I love hearing. Y'all talk about new movies, especially Loisos. He's trying to keep up on, you know, current events. He is the youngest member of the Epic Film Guys. Like that's his job, rightly so. I'm sitting here what rewatching movies I've been watching since I was five years old and being don't, happy with don't that. Don't forget, Justin. Bitches can't get enough of my stuff. I mean, there's that yes. too. So you the can't. king, the god. Yes, we all we all praise him down on our knees. You're not my dad. <laughs> As you should, because uh, I am your king. 
Oh. So, but thank you very, very much for that. That was, you put a lot of time and effort into that discussion on that movie. And I saw a lot of people talking about it. I was going to watch it to talk about it with you until Wait. you said you need subtitles to understand what Tom Hardy is saying. And I'm like, God damn it. Not again. Seriously. It's like the third fucking time that guys made me do that. Now, See, I wouldn't notice because I just watch movies with subtitles anyway. So, I mean, me too, uh, but but can't do it. Can't do it. I, not, I wouldn't not have been time. able to understand him without them. Um, and yeah, I, I actually watched this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it got cut for time last week. So I'm happy to record it now, although um, I'm, I'm seeing that it's doing pretty well on the rental charts. Like people are uh, supporting this movie. Is it a I mean, is it a captive audience kind of thing, do you think? Or do you think that people are genuinely interested in? I think people are interested in okay. Al Capone as a figure. Well, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Tom Hardy is a star that he, he no matter what, I've never seen Tom Hardy give a boring performance ever. True. So, so that is very true. No matter no matter what the movie is, no matter how bad or good it may be, he's always good in everything. Or at least he's trying. He's doing something different in everything he does. You know what movie Tom Hardy's amazing in? It's a film called Bronson, and we're going to be using that as a segue <laughs> into our next segment. Wow, gentlemen. So listen, this is what this is what happened. You guys have been choosing our canon quarantine movies we've been reviewing every single week on the show punishing us and, in some in some ways and nick basically said last week behind the scenes so that way you guys know it fuck them we're doing whatever we want this week <laughs> <laughs> i don't believe i used exactly that terminology i believe i instead said i'm pulling the veto card and we are going to pick because this episode airs during live stream for the cure like live stream for the cure is going on like most likely unless you listen to the our episodes like the second they drop in your podcatcher we're likely on the air right now raising money for cancer research so whenever i don't know whenever you're taking a break to take a shit when you're not watching the live stream for the cure whatever's going on we wanted to give you something that you were going to love to listen to and we wanted to talk about something absolutely just that, that we knew we were going to be able to apply the full force of our passions to when we review it. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not go anywhere because after the break, Justin, what are we talking about? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Kill a little old lady just for you. Catch it on the six o'clock news. We're talking death wish motherfucking three. imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer ladies and gentlemen the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure and this year we need your help more than ever please join us may 27th through may 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow.
喵喵喵喵，喵喵喵喵喵喵喵。Justin, you missed my meow song. I don't want to hear your goddamn meow song. Is it the meow 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 meow? But I worked really hard on it. Do you remember when that commercial would play constantly on television? You must have been about five. I recall it. Yeah, cats. Minimize the vigilante stuff for the press. Tell them it's creeps killing creeps. Nobody cares, anyways. It'll be just like before, Mister Vigilante. How you going, Dad? <laughs> As Loy Sauce chugs his beer down to prepare for. One of the finest cinematic achievements ever to grace the silver screen. This might be the pinnacle of, of cinematic achievements for any film ever. Just, just any film. Was this the high water mark? Was this is, is cinema just been on a downward slide since 1985? It's possible. Yes, it's very very possible. Boy sauce, take it away. Well, Justin. Was it was it three years ago now, or four? Three years ago now. It was your birthday. You should tell me. You know what? I can't even perceive time anymore.、Um, let's just say it was three years ago. I had the best birth- birthday gift of my entire life、uh, when I sat down at the Alamo Draft House to watch Death Wish Three on the big screen, and this was before I'd become creative manager. But at the time, I was working as、uh, the assistant to my my predecessor, Gabe Rusin, and I said, "Gabe, you gotta you gotta show Death Wish three on my birthday," and he acquiesced. And so, it, it I would say, I would I I'd say a packed theater of Bronson fans, action Very fans,、packed. very packed, gathered to watch Death Wish three on the big screen. And what was amazing about this particular screening, in addition, was that we had famed film historian and Charles Bronson expert Paul Talbot do an exclusive intro. You reached out to Paul, and he provided one of the best intros to any film club screening.、Uh, of course, he's the author of the books Bronson's Loose, The Making of the Death Wish Films, and Bronson's Loose Again on the set with Charles Bronson. And we made it a whole huge event.、Uh, 
and we gave away one of his books at the screening. It was it was fantastic. And that memory will always be with me for the rest of my life. So we're here because it's Canon Quarantine, because we're celebrating Canon films all quarantine long. As long as the pandemic goes, there's no end in sight. So we may be <laughs> we may be doing Canon reviews for a long we're time. We're going to start having to scrape the bottom of the barrel after, after a while. <laughs> like, like I said before, I've wanted this for so many years and finally it took a fucking pandemic for it to happen. But I'm thankful either way, ladies and gentlemen. So, Death Wish 3. For those of you who don't know, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of the history of the, of the series. Um, although, there's really not much to say. Um, because... Of course, after the healthy profit that Cannon reaped from Death Wish 2, Golan and Globus eagerly reunited Charles Bronson with Michael Winner, the director of the first two Death Wish films for the third installment. And it's not necessary story-wise to, to watch the first two Death Wish films in the series before you watch Death Wish 3, but I think it's almost essential that you do so, so that you can trace the evolution of the series firsthand and see how it started from its roots in the 1974 original as a gritty, somber reflection of one man's moral struggle in the face of anguish and unimaginable loss, and, and, and watch it become the mind-meltingly bombastic, completely unrestrained, batshit insane superhero fantasy that is Death Wish 3. And this comes to us, gentlemen, from the screenwriter of Invaders from Mars. <laughs> Nick's favorite movie! <laughs> the story of ex-vigilante Paul Kersey. Seriously, he swears. Ex-vigilante. For real this time, guys. He's an ex-vigilante. He says it a few times in the movie. He says he's done with that. Yeah, he, he says it. His his days of gunning people down in the street are, are long behind him. Uh, and, of course, Paul Kersey is portrayed by the icon himself, Charles Bronson. And Justin... Uh, Talk a little bit about your love for Charles Bronson, because from the very first day that I met you, you've been talking about your passion for Charles Bronson. When I went over to your place for the first time, I saw a giant Death Wish 3 poster on your wall. So you got to tell me where that love stemmed from, why he's important to you, and what the Death Wish series means to you personally. Well, goddammit, he's the best, most iconic action hero of all time. Um, my love for Charles Bronson is rooted in my relationship with my grandfather, my mother's father, who on Sunday afternoons would sit and watch Westerns with me. And he wasn't the biggest fan of Italian Westerns, but if Charles Bronson was in it, he would watch it. If Clint Eastwood was in it, he'd watch it. Uh, and we would watch together. And at a very early age, I kind of picked up on why he liked Charles Bronson. He was a lot like my grandfather, the strong, silent type, brooding, intimidating, hyper-masculine, and the classic man that you would think of in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the middle of the 80s. And that's how Bronson plays all of his characters. He's an imposing figure. He's very, very physical. He has this strong physicality in every role that he plays, whether it's necessary or not. So whenever he comes on screen, much like Arnold Schwarzenegger has later on in his career, there is this presence, this charisma, where he doesn't have to spout off a lot of dialogue. He can just stand there in a cool outfit 
and the gleam of his eye towards his co-star will be enough to make you feel what he's coming from. And for me, even to this day, we don't have action stars like Charles Bronson anymore. We just don't. Everything is fancied up. Everyone has to have a thousand kills in one movie or martial arts moves and flips or a giant franchise behind them. In this case, this was the beginning of that. So the Death Wish series having sequels, Death Wish had sequels before Rambo had a sequel. I mean, this was a new thing in Hollywood. So you have to think back to when this was made. For me, he's a man's man. And yes, I'm saying that in a very old school sensibility, an old school way of thinking. But it's so special to me because I really do think it's lost in today's world of movie making. And in this movie, especially, he comes in and you know Bronson doesn't want to make this movie. He didn't want to make any sequel to the original Death Wish. Charles Bronson says all of his lines with the conviction of a 64-year-old man who was just paid $1.5 million to appear in a Death Wish sequel. <laughs> because all of that is true. He was 64 years old. He was paid $1.5 million on a Because recorded- he doesn't have to, at this point, he doesn't have to act. Like, there's none required. His character is just man who shoots people. <laughs> Grab gun, lift the gun, aim the gun. Look at the person you're about to kill in the meanest, (laughs) most menacing way possible and shoot the blank at the actor you're supposed to kill. Um, This movie was supposed to have like Golden and Globe has said that it had like a $12 million budget. Michael Winter said it was a $15 million budget. Apparently it was like around eight to $7 million and 1.5 of that did go to Bronson because that was his price tag. That was part of his contract with Canon. He got at least 1 million to 1.5 million per movie. And this was right after Michael winter had like two flops in a row after he signed with Canon and Canon had their first big hit, their first big major hit with death wish Two. That was their first hit and their first movie they, where they actually had a star in it. The story picks up. I mean, at this point in the series, Paul Kersey's entire immediate family is dead. So what is there to do <laughs> but, but return to New York? I'm sorry to laugh about that, but it's true. They're all gone. They're dead. Except, 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 for, except for his, you know, married son-in-law, which you never hear from again from the first movie. And also his friend Charlie. And the film opens as he arrives in the city to visit Charlie. And what a coincidence that just as Kersey steps foot in New York, Charlie is attacked in his apartment by a group of thugs. What a coincidence that Charlie happens to die right as Kersey finds him laying on the floor in a pool of his own blood. And what a coincidence that the police happen to enter at this very moment and mistake Kersey for the murderer. So they promptly arrest him. And at this point in the series, Paul Kersey should be locked away because wherever he goes, a tornado of carnage and bloodshed follows. <laughs> well, the thing I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback right off of what you said. What I love so much about the opening of this movie, you know, aside from them reusing the Jimmy page score from besides everything, film, besides everything <laughs> with the funky sax, the fact that Paul Kersey rides into town on a fucking bus, um, you know, the How movie else are you going to get to New York. The movie immediately knows what it is. It's not pulling any punches whatsoever. It jumps right in with a gang burglarizing, brutally beating an old man's ass to death in the most vicious way possible as Paul Kersey shows up with his luggage and the cops come in right at that moment. And this isn't just 
for movie's sake, this happened a lot in the 80s with cops just pinpointing whoever's there at the scene. New York during the early 80s was one of the most violent places you could ever step foot in in the entire world. And the police department, the NYPD, had a lot of problems with ever fingering and finding out who so-and-so was that beat this guy or killed that guy's cat or whatever it may be. And they would jump on this kind of situation. So in reality, as unrealistic as this seems to a lot of people now, it's very realistic when you look at it within the context of when this actually happened. Nick, you've been awful quiet over there. Yeah, the first act of this movie, if you've never seen this movie, you have to just accept that it literally throws you headlong into exactly what this movie is going to be. It's like it's like Justin said, this movie knows exactly what it is. It pulls absolutely no punches whatsoever. And it, you know, so, yeah, it just like coincidentally, he just happens to show up at the apartment. He just happens to get hauled to the prison. And then when he gets thrown into prison, that's when he doesn't even do anything necessarily to Fraker. Fraker's just also in the holding cell and Bronson. So they get Kersey into the holding cell and some big fat dude comes up to him and gives him attitude and he grabs him by the fucking head and he rams his fucking oh, head through the fucking, fucking bars through the, the bars, cell, which is Which is so glorious and amazing. And for whatever reason, this show of 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 masculinity or the show of 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 toughness from Kersey's character is enough to irk Fraker to the point where he then later like instructs two other goons in the prison cell to attack him you know it's just like it 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 doesn't like you're not going into this for a complicated plot setup. All this is meant to be is literally just, it's a death wish movie. It's just putting Paul Kersey into position to mow down a whole bunch of fucking like thugs and, and gangsters and, and things like that. That's all it is doing. Uh, so do not go into it looking for, you know, super heavy lifting plot beats and, and character development, even though there is some good character stuff in the movie, which I, I really, really do enjoy. We'll get to it as we get to it. But yeah, please, you know, just understand that when you go into it, just it's all you and, and Nick referring to Manny Fraker, which is the center villain of the film played by Gavin O'Hurley, Dan O'Hurley, son. And if you've watched happy days, it's Richie's older brother that came in for those two seasons or one season or whatever it was, then magically left because there was no space to have a brother on happy days. I think he's a great movie villain. Um, also he has the fucking raddest ever combed down by Hawk of all fucking time. I begged my wife so hard to let me do that hairstyle. Cause I bleached it last night, right? I bleached my hair and I said, we're going to review death wish three tomorrow. My hair is blonde. Just let me shave down the middle and I'll, I'll comb it to the sides and I'll have that fucking he, dude. He's like a very lanky rat like character. He's got that rat like quality with his nose and his teeth sticking out. And I'm like, that's like me, dude. It's perfect. But I love he's the like, way he delivers his dialogue in the movie, too. Like he delivers it with a lot of like it's oozing with menace. And that's what makes him an effective villain in the movie. But not even him, not even withstanding, like a lot of the goons and a lot of the just gangsters in the movie, like the way that they're shot and the way that their performances go, like they're allowed to have like a lot more fun 
kind of with those crazy, like, you know, with threatening and with menacing people, like to where they really feel like a threatening force. And he, as their ringleader, because you get that one scene where when he shows back up at the projects, you know, the other dude is like, hey, I've been keeping the place warm for you or whatever the hell he says. And then he literally fucking stabs him in the throat. <laughs> dude, he does. He comes back in. So brutal, but it's so and, good. And and he stabs him right in the throat. There's like a real strong close up of him stabbing in the throat on the sticker and you're the sticky <laughs> and he just after every's like you told me to take charge no this guy is bad fucking ass and like yeah. i said he's got that physical presence of that kind of villain that you and i love so so much you have to have that kind of villainy and that kind of presence in order for us to buy into you and i think that regardless of how much of a cartoon that the movie is i think that gavin o'hurley he plays Manny Fraker perfectly and and within the bounds of what the script requires him to. I think it, it's great because what do you see the gang members doing in in the entire movie as well? They pack the 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 apartment house, the projects here with all of these, you know, just they're one off characters, almost all of them, you know. But they're all you know just nice like elderly families, just really nice people who aren't you know <laughs> trying to do anything it's, to hurt anybody. It seems to be a town populated exclusively by elderly, pretty citizens. much. But it, it, what it does is it. Gives gives you a lot of sympathy for them. And then you're, you know, basically all you're seeing is these basically young, they're all young thugs just coming and, and just tormenting these people, like literally just randomly stealing shit from their houses all the time, randomly just attacking them in the streets in broad fucking daylight, because there's no police presence anywhere. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I question this uh, on several levels because they explain early on that, um, they're they're sending out more patrol officers to to the area, but that there's a higher percentage of crimes, which that doesn't add up to me. <laughs> I don't understand how that's supposed to work necessarily. I understand that uh, you know uh, this particular gang is is quite large. Yeah, and- the cops increased their efforts by fifteen percent, but apparently crime reported is up eleven percent. Yeah, I don't understand how that's supposed to work, but whatever. It's a cartoon. Um, but yeah, Nick, you're right. I mean, the the threat is very much established. It's very heavy handed because the creeps. And by the way, is the gang called the creeps or is that just what people call them? I think they just call that's them just, that. I don't think that's we're just ever what they told. Call them. No, I mean, upon yeah. my extensive research, I, I was under the impression early on that there is a name for the gang itself, but reviewing Paul Talbot's book and just looking through the information that I had in front of me without looking at the original script, I could not find an actual name. So there's like not a name for them, like the bloods of the Crips or I think there'd probably be like, especially in the, in the scenes at the police department, I think there would probably be like an offhanded reference to X gang or Y gang or, or whatever. And we never get that. Yeah, we don't get that in the film, so I, I guess we're just led to believe by watching it from our viewpoint that they're just a gang of, and it's multiracial too, which I do appreciate. I, I know that, <laughs> I know we'll probably get, I, I can see your face, Liz, I know what you want to say, I know where you're going with this, but it is a multiracial gang. Well, uh I'm not going to even touch that one. <laughs> I'm just but, saying there's, but I there's did, people of all different shapes. And so, there's fat motherfuckers. There's yeah, skinny well, motherfuckers. There's mars- 
there's people with big old biceps and then there's people from all different walks of life in that gang. I want to I want to mention that I did extensive research of my own, Justin. I counted how many times the word creeps is said in the movie, and it's 13. I took a tally. It's 13 times. Um, I just thought since this is my 50th viewing, I'd, I would I would do a little drinking game. Take a drink every time the word creeps is said in Death Wish 3. But yes, anyway, um, lots of uh, lots of variety in the villains. You have the giggler. Of course, who quote really moves, and then That's you also right. the have the giggler played by Kirk Taylor, who ends up later in his career actually being very successful with Full Metal Jacket. He's the fucking man. He laughs when he runs. Nobody catches him. Jesus, Loy Sauce, he really moves. That's right. <laughs> then you have Alex Winter in his first film role, um, and I really want to know if. He was given a script of lines to say, or if he was just ad-libbing on set, because um, the line, come on, bitch, I want to eat you, is <laughs> just chef's kiss. I'll lick you all over. And then he gets a tire iron to his face. Alex Winter, is he's actually come out for screenings of this movie, and he's introduced it, and he's done introductions. Um He's talked shit about the movie a lot. It's his first movie. And we love you from Bill and Ted. We love you from The Lost Boys. Um, I love him in those movies. I'm not going to hate on him in this. He he likes to talk a lot of shit about Charles Bronson. It was his first introduction to being on a big movie set because make no mistake. I mean, this movie was upwards to $10 million. So it was a big movie for canon. Um, but during the scene where Charlie is supposed to hit him with a lead pipe, Bronson couldn't do it. And, and winner at one point said, Charlie, we all want to go home. Would you please hit this man so we can go home? It, I guess they were taking like three hours for the shot where him to hit him. And he said, I can't hit this kid. He looks like a fucking choir boy. I'll <laughs> lose my audience. And he does. I mean, out of all the people they cast <laughs> as, as bad guys, as goons, as part of this gang, Alex Winter looks like he's like, a, no offense, Loisos. He looked like you before the facial hair. Mm. I mean, full of sweet youth and innocence. Now, now you've just, man, the darkness creeping up your chin. I look like Charles Bronson, right, fellas? Honestly, right now, if you shave the bottom part of your beard, you have the Bronson stash because his stash <laughs> on the ends kind of twists out a little bit. So you, you have the perfect. Perfect start to a Bronson stash. Thank you, Justin. Uh, but moving swiftly along. So basically the crime is so rampant in the streets that Bronson decides to take it upon himself. And I think what's really clever about Paul Kersey in this movie is that he baits his prey. So his first Which instinct is... is great his first instinct is to buy a new car as bait which is something that they took from the original oh, death wish novel that's right that, that was not included in the previous films but i, I lose my shit every time I, I i watch the scene where kersey buys the car because for whatever reason it hits me right in the funny bone when the dealer asks him uh, how are you paying cash or card and you hear bronson's voice off screen as you see a hard cut and a tight close-up to bronson pulling out a wad of cash 
Cash. (laughs) 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 Just something about the way that scene's edited makes me crack up. Oh, my God. Then we see the payoff to that. And we've played the clip on the show many times. But I'm going to throw it to Nick. The scene. The scene. The one I quote all the time. I I think it's the scene. And I have to say this before it goes to Nick. This is the scene that made Nick a Charles Bronson fanatic, a Charles Bronson appreciation member like myself. Cause when we were doing Bronson, was it two years ago, Nick? I think it was, yeah. During December, 2017, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did that for me because you're my boy. Cause I love you and you love me right. in some way as annoying as I can be to you. And when you saw that for the first time, I remember the text I got and I remember the reaction we got on the show and it made me so fucking happy that I wanted to cry because it was like that religious moment where you're like, oh, my God, he saw something put to celluloid on film that I knew he would appreciate. So rather, ladies and gentlemen, rather than try to do it any kind of justice right now, I'm just going to play the sound clip that we've played on this show a million times before. You've heard it and then we're going to talk about it. Here it is. Hey. What's the problem? What? With the car. What's the problem? Just get out of my fucking face. Who are you? We're still in the fucking car. What's it to you? It's my car. Now you're going to die. So it, <laughs> he, he decides to go to the neighbor's house for dinner, knowing that his new car is outside and he hears a racket outside. And then he goes outside and he sees two toughs, two creeps, as it were, breaking into the car. And I mean, as you heard, he just confronts them and wants to know what they're doing. And it's legitimately the 30 greatest seconds of celluloid ever recorded, ever in history. You have the baffled expression from the one punk who's like, what? which as we Justin and I talked about it before we started the segment is the best part of the scene. Cause it's the look on his face is a what? <laughs> well, you have this dude coming in in his, his birthday crazy. suit. He's in his dinner outfit. He, I love the before that scene when he's walking through the hall and he smells the stuffed cabbage at the Capra's apartment. And then basically he's knocking on the door cause he likes the smell of the food. And he's like, hmm, smells good. I'm Charles fucking Brunson. Let me in. And then they're like, would you like to join us? Sure. Can I clean up first? And he goes upstairs and like washes up. And and then like during the dinner, when you hear like a half cut off story about how the cappers met, then he knows that the bait is making a trap. Bait. Things are happening. Has been sprung. And then you just you just were still in the fucking car. What's it to you? And then the, the soundtrack, like that that weird, whatever the fuck that sound is, that wow. <laughs> Synthesizer, baby. Like, just absolutely and, amazing. And then the, the dude, he, and we got to do it. We got to just, we just got to play it. Again, you guys have heard it a million times. So this is so old hat for you guys. But he pulls the knife and then he says, now you're going to die. <laughs> and then what I love so much is after that, Kersey acts like it's nothing. And this goes to show what fans probably saw at the time. You know, again, the movie starts off and initiates the movie like, yo, you already saw Death Wish 1 and 2. 
motherfuckers that saw too, you definitely know what's going on here. You're prepped for this. After he kills these two goons, he goes inside. And what happened? They sent them a message. <laughs> and you know goddamn well he's about to sit down in his dinner suit and finish that fucking stuffed cabbage after he just mowed down those two goons. That's what I love about this character is just lifted up into, like Waysaw said perfectly earlier on, like a comic book cartoon level, which I was unsure and like my initial viewing of this movie, if it was done purposely and apparently Michael Winter did it on purpose. He said, I liked Death Wish 3 as a wonderful, bouncy horror comic. I thought it was very funny with a sense of comedy. And when he went to go make the movie, uh, he said, quote, I didn't want the grim tone of the first two entries. I thought we'd cheer it up. It was a different era. And I thought these enormous stunts and buildings blowing up. I must add, I didn't write the script, but I wanted it to be a lot of fun. So I guess he did really set out to make this cartoony comic booky, you know, kind of light view on the action motion picture, because the way all the deaths happen in this movie, I mean, there's not a strong emotional weight to them in the way there is in like the first movie, even the second movie, which is extremely dark and mean spirited. This movie is like, I'll just kill the dude in the corner delivering the fucking mail and it's fine as long as there's cool music behind it and someone laughs. I'll, I'll shoot a dude in the back while I'm eating ice cream and he steals my camera. <laughs> Listen. Oh, the well is, Here's And here's the thing that I really like about this movie, because basically from this point forward, until we get to the third act, which is like a whole podcast unto itself, we're never going to do it enough justice, really. But from what you have here, basically, is an entire act of the film, which is just an escalating tension between Bronson's character, the residents that are like in the projects here, and the gang. And you have like random gang members. Loisos was talking about like he's setting up the traps. He's setting up all sorts of different stuff. It's a precursor to Home Alone. Yep. Killing off gang members and whatnot. Like you have that that scene where he shoots the giggler straight in the back is fucking glorious. (laughs) I absolutely love that scene. That is so fucking good. And then you have everyone around applauding murder. Like, yeah, literally applauding it. Yeah. So it's it's literally just like this increasing escalation of tension between. But you're laughing the whole time because you're enjoying a lot of the aspects of it. But we'll get to some darker aspects of it here shortly. But it's just this increasing escalation. And then you start you're basically the, the, the gang members start escalating their violence. Like they're trying to, you know, really, really send a message and whatnot. So they start going after, instead of just no name characters that we don't care about, they start going after characters who we've at least met and sort of know. And that's when we bring counselor Troy herself, uh, Marina Sritis into the, into the film, you know, she's been a, a character here and there. We've seen her with her husband and whatnot. And we've gotten to know her husband a little bit. Cause he kind of follows Bronson around because he just kind of, why would you not? This he's the Justin in this movie, basically. If Bronson was just there and Justin was alive well, listen, at the time, well, and listen, around, Kersey, Justin would just be following him around the whole time. <laughs> well, Kersey saves his wife. It's true. Um, as soon as Kersey gets to the area, his wife is being harassed, as we said earlier, by Alex Winter's character, yep. um, and he fucking tire irons him to the face. So he's appreciative to the fact that you know you helped out my wife Maria, and then of course. As is required in some way, shape, or form, as uncomfortable it may be to say, even from my mouth, there has to be a rape scene or an uncomfortable scene in a Death Wish movie. Now, make no mistake, 
I'm going to put this on record from my viewpoint. Uh, the rape scene in this movie is nowhere near the level of the first film or the second film. Now, if you've watched the second film and you want to see more of that, the uncut version is so disgusting. Sick and sadistic. Yeah. I remember the first time that I bought it, the shout factory uncut version, Lois house, you came over we to watch watched it, it with together. Me, yeah. And I said, so I bought this movie for like, five more minutes of a disgusting rape scene. Now well, you also have, bought the movie because of the commentary by Paul Talbot. By Paul Talbot. Yes. And it's a new transfer. Um, but I mean, it's so hard to get to that aspect because the original book that was written that all these films are based on had the rape scene in it. It's the initial motive for our hero to come into play and actually start mowing down bad guys but in this movie it is i'd say a little bit more reserved um in comparison in comparison michael let's make no mistake michael visceral it's 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 still a very very i mean it's it's not comfortable to watch like it's very very uncomfortable uh it's very visceral like i mean and you know they do this intentionally because you know it's making the creeps even worse uh, villain wise in your eyes, because it's not even like, it's like this, like whatever kind of thing. Like it, it kind of goes on twice because there's a, the first, first scene when they assault her in the parking lot and then the, rip her shirt off almost instantly because we need to see tits apparently, and then grab her and put her in the car and then drive, drive her somewhere else. And then the whole thing kind of begins again. Like it's, so it's kind of like, you got to see through that one part. And then there's the intercut sequence of like driving her to the other place or whatever. It's like, it's a weird way. That I think that what hurts the movie the most, but. Nick, I think what really most movie fans hold on to the most is the behind the scenes. And I know Lois House knows about how this whole sequence was shot. And that's what really hurts the legacy of this movie. Yeah, the behind the scenes story of how to, how it happened. Because let's n- make no mistake, Michael Winner, the director, is a disgusting pervert, um, and he he seems to get like a real joy out of these scenes too. Which um, there's another woman later on. You see the woman being carried out at the end. Um, the after the black woman, uh, topless, being carried out of the apartment. That was apparently. Michael Winner's lover at the time. Um, and her name was Sandy Grizzle. And she went on record by saying that uh, Winner whipped her and used her as a sex slave. So Michael Winner mm. is just not. Uh, he's gross. I don't know. He, yeah, he's there's just seems to be a disgusting voyeuristic aspect to it. But. As you'll as you'll watch in the amazing documentary Electric Boogaloo about the history of Canon films, um, the whole shooting of Marina Sirtis's rape scene uh, came about. Well, let's just say it was not properly managed by Winner, uh, because in no way did he make her feel safe. In no way did he make her feel like she wasn't being exploited. Marina Sirtis said that she did this because she did this movie because she was a young actress. She was struggling, wanting to break into the business. And so she put herself through what she went through, but he told her, if you don't do this rape scene, and if you don't show your tits and and participate, I'll, I'll make sure you never work in Hollywood again. So she went through with it. 
But not only that, but Justin, you know the story of uh, her laying on the mattress. It was cold. They were shooting outside. And a crew member came up to put his jacket on top of her to to keep keep her warm. warm. And Michael Winter screamed at the crew member and said, take that jacket off of her right now or you'll be fired. It was like a huge deal. Um, Unfortunately, um, not to cut you off or what you have more in store about Michael Winter, but there has been more to come out about Michael Winter um, throughout the years that, you know, he had like a bondage thing that he loved doing. So this is part of what his personality was. And I'm not defending him in any way uh, whatsoever. Hollywood directors during that time frame definitely had a sense of power that they loved to enforce on their cast and crew. And it was really just like the Hollywood way of thinking at that point in time, even up until like the nineties, that was what it was like. And we still deal with that today. And she did it. The the me, the me too movement. I mean, it's never going to be like that in Hollywood again. It it never will. And she did it. And unfortunately bad things happened. She could have gotten up and walked off of the set, but she had that pressure and, Unfortunately, the scene happened the way that it happened. But fortunately for the viewer and for her, her legacy isn't nearly as bad as what we saw in the second film, uh, the second Death Wish film, that is, because that is something that I, I feel like could be haunting to any person. It's the disgusting. Thing- and and it is exploitative uh, in no matter what context. I mean, yes, the objective is to make you hate the creeps even more. Yeah. Um, but the whole thing just casts a black cloud over the movie once you know the behind the scenes of it. I mean, I think this movie threatens to become bogged down in so much senseless graphic violence, but there there is a level of goofiness that dispels the unpleasantness. 100%. Uh, but I just feel so bad for poor Marina Sirtis. Uh, thankfully, she had Star Trek later in life and, and other roles in which she's great that we can just kind of um be thankful that it didn't she's she's not known for this movie she's she's counselor troy in star trek the next generation i mean that's how like literally 99.99 percent of people know her so thankfully this is not her legacy and and this just goes to show how naive or how blind Golan was, but I have to recite a line because that's been an ongoing thing during our hashtag canon quarantine series here. It has a rape in it like you've never seen. It's very strong. It's World War III. This is the most violent movie I've ever seen. But don't misunderstand me. It's an anti-violence film. Maybe it will get some good reviews. This week in epic film history. Don't be throwing up that PBR there. Hipster slash hobo Justin. No, Special Nick, shout it's out. Just that, it's just that I really, really liked. I'm telling you right now. Hey, you act surprised to hear from me. Are you like excited or something? Is there something in your pants that may be growing like a slithering snake through the field? We've been a little bit concerned about you there, Liz, because we haven't heard from you in weeks and weeks. And meanwhile, we've got this fucking hobo slash hipster running around up in here drinking PBR. I figured you followed me down to Punta Cana for my honeymoon and you were down there banging every dude you could find on the beach. That sounds really great, actually. But, you know, lately, um, Justin doesn't like to drink the heavier beers, but tonight he chose this thing that's called Sly Fox, 
which obviously fits very well in with my personality. A lot of people call me a sly fox, you know, because I am quite <laughs> foxy, Nick. So I always thought like Professor X stood for Professor X rated that he like did porno movies or something. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's good to hear from you, Nick. Like, I'm really excited to, like, Emily's going to get really sad right now as Justin beats himself to death. As I was saying, we have a special shout out to one Patrick Sherwood for your mock up of hobo slash hipster Justin with the little fucking hobo hat and the ripped up coat and everything. It looked hilarious. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Justin, welcome back. Paul from the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews on their most recent episode did in fact call Dirty Dancing one of the worst movies he's ever seen. I love you for that, buddy, because it fucking sucks. I totally Uh disagree 100%. Uh That's that's Swayze Head's behind the desk looking at me now. That's damn right. He's burning a hole in me. Swayze's enough to love that movie. Stop stop looking at me. Oop. He loves you, Nick. He has, he, has a, he has a deep passion for you. He wants to dance with you in a dirty, dirty way. And then he wants to be dead and be a ghost and haunt you for the rest of your life. But he really loves you. That's why he just wants to come back to life to love you. Why Brian Singer decided to make this film in the 80s is beyond me. Aside from that shoehorned in scene of the characters going to see Return of the Jedi, which, by the way, shot itself in the fucking foot because it bashes the third film in a trilogy. It's there as a stab in the back to Brett Ratner's The Last Stand, when this film, in fact, is actually almost as bad as The Last Stand, if I might even say it, Nick, as bad as The Last Stand to me, in my opinion. So I don't know why, aside from a few wardrobe choices, why they chose to have this film set in the 80s and not just a couple years after Days of Future Past. It didn't benefit the film at all. It had nothing to do with what was going on in the 80s. The characters didn't feel like they were in the 80s outside of a few wardrobe choices. So yeah, there the was, timeline. I mean, the, the, the dress, I mean, I, I will say as far as the setting itself and the costuming, I think they did the 80s pretty good justice. But I completely agree with you in the fact that they just, makeup just didn't show up, I guess. The makeup department was completely busy working on Oscar Isaac's makeup as Apocalypse and Which forgot we'll get that, that they needed to age up all these other characters and actually make them look like they were in their 40s now. Most of these characters or, were around in first class in 1962. Or they just don't give a shit. Set. Or Nick, I, I just think honestly what it boils down to is that Brian Singer didn't give a shit. Uh, as he didn't give a shit with a lot of what happened in this movie. Which, another major thing that we all go to the movies to see, Nick. It's called acting. And this film had some of the worst acting of any comic book movie I've seen in years. Anti-violence film. Now, that is a good segue to jump into the weaponry that we see in the movie. Which Paul Kersey gets by mail order, by the way. Which is which glorious. Which I find... Which I find wonderful. But in my will be magnum. Yes. So we get basically scenes where he's showcasing the various weaponry that will come into play later. And again, um, I just love the way Kersey I mean, like <laughs> talks about these these guns and he pulls out the Wildy and he's like it's a shorter version of the African big game cartridge. And it's just, it's just well, what so I love funny. even more, Lois Sauce, is the fact that we're teased with the Wildy. And at the time, it was a new gun. So when he's talking about it, say, for example, you're a new audience member in the theater, like opening weekend. You don't know what Wildy is. It's a commercial. So so, so it could technically be like a person. Does he have a sidekick coming? Wildy's coming. 
And then he goes and grabs it mail order and he pulls it out. And there's like a whole group of fucking of the neighbors in the room at the time. And he explains it. And I love it. African big game cartridge. And whoever came up with this idea is genius. It was great marketing for the gun itself because apparently the gun sold gangbusters after the movie came out because Bronson handled it so well. It's almost like, you know, uh, the, the Magnum that Clint Eastwood used. Um, can put a hole in the, the first dirty Harry movie. Yeah. And, and Nick, this has been a, uh, a topic that we've touched on as we've reviewed these Canon movies. You've, often complained about the fact that no one in the canon movie knows how to hold a gun. But True. I'd like to pose the question in Death Wish 3, do people know how to hold a gun? Well, they definitely do. It's glorious. It's And that's, and I mean, you have Bronson who, you know, he's obviously done this in his career for a, a very, very long time where he's held and used all sorts of different weaponry on screen, even going back to his days, you know, as, as star in Westerns and whatnot. And, you know, like even all the punks, like even, even everybody else in the film, like there's definitely an, an increase. And it, it, like you think about some of the movies where I've complained about the gunplay or there are movies that came after this in the Canon whatnot. So I don't know in the Canon Canon, I guess, is it, I think maybe it might just be an issue of like where golden Globus kept tightening their belts more and more, and they wanted to spend less and less money. So they cared less and less about getting anybody in on set who actually knew or cared how to hold a firearm. So maybe that's why there was kind of a, a de-evolution, I would say maybe in, in that, but yeah, everybody in this movie, like you get, and how many shots, I mean, again, you talk about being a commercial for the will be, but you know, the, how many amazing shots do you get to see throughout this movie of Bronson just basically squaring up and aiming, you know, and holding that gun, like exactly like you would hold that gun. But even, you know, you think of like Ed Loiter's character, uh, Dick Stryker, you see him, you know, running down the street in, in the one scene, like in the third act and whatnot with his little, his little snub nose revolver, you know, popping at guys. God rest and his soul. Um, as striker, I have to give a huge shout out to Lauder because he's in so many of my favorite movies, including the rocketeer. He was an iconic character actor. Yep. He'd already worked with Bronson on Breakheart Pass, the white Buffalo and death hunt. So he fits in perfectly here. I love his character in this movie. He is the perfect ying to Bronson's yang where he brings him in. You know, he's the one that's like, well, you're in my city. And I, you know, he's going to violate his constitutional right. I'm the law as he punches here. him. That's right. And he punches them I back. And, the... Oh, that's, that's next month. That's boys. Next month. <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't jizz in your pants too early. We have to wait a whole, almost a whole month. My Blu-ray just got here today for that. Shh. I already announced it on the page. So there's no secret to that. Whatever. But. There's another character. People, yes, Justin, I agree with you. Uh, fantastic character actor and a, and a wonderful. We got to uh, talk about Bennett. We have, yep. Martin Balsam is Bennett, Detective Arbogast from Psycho, Academy Award and Tony Award winner in this movie. You have to think this is where, unfortunately, in the 80s, a lot of iconic actors would end up in a Death Wish 3. But this guy plays it straight. Yeah, but it brings, it brings a, a gravitas to it because then you get to see Bronson, who, I mean, you know, yeah, say what you will about Bronson is an actor, but it's not like Bronson took a $1.5 million payday and wasn't trying. Like you, he's still definitely giving a good performance. I don't think he's giving 100%. a bad performance. And then you see him, you pair him with a Martin Balsam and it's, it's a great, great performance from Bennett as well. I just, I love it. And it, and it adds, I mean, it's, 
the good thing about it too, and, and I mentioned this before, and you know, we'll probably mention it even again, is you have like the the the, the creeps, as as we're calling them, are really cartoonish and over the top. So it's going back to these characters that really grounds the film and kind of gives you that well, you know, yin and yang thing, as we said there between Kersey and, and Stryker. It's kind of the same thing between like, you know, your protagonists, like your 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 main actors, you know, the, that you're cheering for, and then your antagonists. It's kind of a, a, a good distinction. And, and where normally canon runs into trouble with this sort of thing, because maybe you don't have the right direction, or maybe you don't have the right pieces to kind of pull it together, where there's a little bit of a thematic like fracture in there it works in this movie it finds this weird synergy and it works like it all just works when it comes together on screen and i think that has to have at least something to do with winner's direction it's it, it's got to have you know a, a little bit of that cohesion to it which is why it's which is it's why definitely, it's good. I think it's better directed than Death Wish 2 when you look at them as films. But Nick, I have to throw it to you right now because this is something we have to discuss. The town that we both lived in, I'm from, and that you live in now is referenced in this fucking movie. This movie is iconic for mentioning Binghamton and we cannot go any further before discussing the love interest that is Catherine Davis played by the wooden, the block of pale wood, that log on the side of the river, mm. Deborah Raffin, the she, love interest. She Ooh. cannot resist the Bronson. Immediately she, when she, she thirsty, sees him. Baby. She thirsty. <laughs> it just goes to show the brute sexual charisma that Bronson has. She travels to the fucking ghetto to ask him on a date. Then she says she's a city girl in reference to being from Binghamton. She also has her bitch sister that she hates from Binghamton that she loves to talk about. So Nick, I know, I know. I love hearing it. I know you, I just want to hear your opinion on this character. I just wish there was like a, you know, a BU Bearcats like sweater or something in the background. Like that would sell it even, that would sell it even further. But it's always, it's always great when you can hear stuff like that in in a movie. It's always great when you, because listen, Binghamton doesn't get mentioned in movies all that often. And she says it twice. And she says it twice. So, I mean, listen, that's where I am. Like, well, I'm in Endicott, which is you know binghamton adjacent it's, it's all fucking Binghamton. it's all binghamton basically but yeah it's the binghamton area the 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 triple cities as it were whatever else you want to call it but yeah it's it's cool it's it's a cool little reference and every time i hear it i'm like mm-hmm. well but meanwhile I think that- but i mean to, to to get back to davis's to davis though as a character <laughs> yeah it's like loisaw yeah. said you know she gotta get her some bronson i mean it's the stalest performance in the film, but she just instantly has wet panties for Charles Bronson, which is, I mean, make no she, mistake. We, she invites him over. Yeah. Cooks him a nice dinner and then then asks him, are you married? She probably should have asked him that before she invited <laughs> him over. She don't care. She just wants to spread him. <laughs> just saying. I mean, and her character, favorite- like her character is only in the movie, like. It's as if you haven't had enough of this escalation of of tension between the gangs and between Kersey's character, but she's literally only in the movie to die. Like, that's her only entire purpose in this movie is just to give him more of an emotional stake in what's happening. You know you love that death scene. Well, I love the death scene because uh, 
he goes to check his mail on the way to dinner <laughs> at like fucking 10 o'clock at night. He, he makes sure to ever. reference like, do you know a restaurant that's open? I sure do. And then next thing you know, like, I'm going to get my mail. And um, do cars, when they cr- when cars crash, do they spontaneously combust or... Is that yes. just in, in movie? No, yes, I'm, they I'm, do. Sh- I'm sure that that happens all the time. They do. Yeah. Even when it's a small little like collision into the side of another car, I'm sure that both cars just immediately explode. They blow up. Arguably, like it was a fender bender. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, yes, that is hilarious. Um, but yes, to Nick's point, her character serves one function and one function only. And Chicken? you wonder if the movie even needed it. It really she serves didn't. chicken. Is that what you're saying? To serve chicken. To drop, it's to the only thing she knows how to twice. make. That's what. It, that's what chicken. she's in there for. Well, Chicken's she's good. She's, I like chicken. She's also in there to uh, to, I think, make the case for Paul Kersey a little bit more because she's so frustrated with her job um, as a public defender. The fact that she can't, um, you know, she she feels like she can't make a difference because these cops, they're just not doing anything about the I problem. I love how in-depth you're going with this character when it's obvious that this character is as one note as they come in this. Well, but, hey, but looking at another there. movie, she- looking at another movie about um, <laughs> about vigilante justice that Bronson, Bronson's in called Ten to Midnight, there's that this movie shares a similar theme in that. It's frustration with the system um, and, and not being able to root out the problem. And really, Bronson decides, I, I guess he didn't have motivation enough, but but her death is what makes him decide that he is going to take to the streets with um, a 30 caliber Browning machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. Open this shit up. Pull the pins out of your grenades. In the cupboard. That's been in the cupboard all along. He just So he comes across this, and the last 25 minutes of this movie are pure chaos. It's a complete free-for-all. You see people throwing Molotov cocktails. People are running around on fire. There's attempted rape in the middle of the street. There's cars crashing into each other and exploding. (laughs) There's people flying off roofs, which gives us these gloriously terrible dummy shots. There's a guy running around in the street. One of the creeps is carrying a toilet plunger. What's he going to do with that? I have no idea. All the while, you have people watching from their windows, smiling and applauding, which is just the most tone deaf shit when you're watching all this carnage in the streets. And this is what inspires the residents who are all elderly, pushing 90 years old to take up their own arms arms against the creeps, which I don't know why they didn't do that before. To defend their houses, but well, they tried. Well, you saw what happened earlier in the movie when they tried. The cops came and said it's illegal to have a firearm in the city, and it was taken from them. So you know the answer to that question. Well, but it's illegal to have a, a firearm in the city. It's illegal to have a firearm in the city unless Bronson comes out <laughs> and indiscriminately starts mowing people down in the streets. Well, it's he has the deal. The, the, the final 25 minutes of this movie, I mean, literally everything that comes before it is just set up for this ultimate coup de gras of absolute batshit lunacy. Every single bit of it. There are 27,000 shots of Bronson aiming the Wilby, <laughs> and every single one of them is pure fucking bliss. He's running around 
with a goddamn, it's like Loisa said, with a 30 caliber machine gun, just straight up mowing people with down. With Rodriguez holding a box. Yeah, Rodriguez Nick, is holding a box forget. with the He's holding a box with a fucking bullet. It's so fucking, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it is legitimately just it, it, like you got gang members just riding by with grenades. Like there's so many just practical explosions, like all of the amazing production work in this film like i mean it is legitimate i can't imagine what this must have been like to shoot all of this action i mean a lot of it's not really connected to kersey's character because a lot of it's just random shots of buildings exploding of cars exploding of guys like just literally just like reaction shot after reaction shot of dudes getting blown off of motorcycles dudes getting shot in the back like big giant gaping wounds and flying off of fire escapes and shit it's i i it, i There's cannot describe it to you in words how amazing it is it's just the greatest fucking thing you'll ever see in your fucking life it is and, and, and not to you mentioned the dummies but no, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, not to interrupt. Uh, I think actually, Justin, I think you were just about to mention it, but there's a part where the the uh, uh, Kersey shoots a guy who's going up a staircase, and he flies off the staircase <laughs> in the direction the bullet went. <laughs> That's not how guns work. But it's amazing to watch on screen. But we have dummies. <laughs> we have. <laughs> We, I laugh every single time. I told these guys it's <laughs> free show that I've seen this movie like 25 to 30 times in my life. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yes, I have a poster, the theatrical original poster on my wall. And no matter how many times I watch this fucking movie, I still laugh until I'm on the floor. There are dummies that fall off buildings that are bad, but they also have like tons of shots of really good stuntmen like falling, oh, yeah. free falling from tops of buildings and from fire escapes which are great stunts in this movie yep. i think honestly when you look back to the time period this happened and i think i made a mistake earlier on in this discussion saying this came before rambo part two i know this came actually after so i apologize for that mistake but it was influenced by that and the way that commando arnold's commando really did set the stage for hey have fun be cartoonish be comic booky and pulpy and just kill a bunch of bad guys in the most interesting ways possible. And Michael Winter decided to take that route with this movie and Canon went with it. And rightly so their cash cow was death wish Two in Bronson. Bronson was their biggest actor. They had, it was the biggest star they had. And when you see all these stunts, some of them come off as cheesy now, but when you look at it within the context of 1985, being in that audience, in a theater opening night, it had to be so exciting to see all these stunts, especially if you're a Charles Bronson fan. Think about it. 1985, he's still a big star and he's blowing away all these dudes and they're flying off fire escapes. They're, you know, he's shooting them through windows. The fact that he's shooting with this gigantic machine gun walking down the street with his sidekick holding a box with the fucking bullets in it. It's hilarious to us now, but in the 80s, 85, People weren't thinking of it within those terms. Um, and it does give us, in my opinion, and I will say this on record, and I'm sure Lois Austin and I will do this at some point, but within the top five ending action sequences of the 80s, 100%, because this is where the budget went with this movie. Oh, easily, the, yeah. Lois Austin, I know you asked me earlier on about the behind the scenes of this movie. Yeah, 
this whole cityscape that you're seeing in the end of the movie looks like New York. It's in fucking England. It's in Britain. It's in the UK. They shot what they could in New York City, and then they found a bad part of a neighborhood and then built up a set around it with some abandoned buildings so they could literally blow up everything they could. And they do to perfect effect. I love so much that you see production, like the production design in this movie and and like all of the practical effects work, like all of those amazing explosions, like all of that stuff is so, so, I mean, so, so good. It's literally, you don't see war movies with this many explosions and this much gunfire in them. You see these cops as extras running in front of the building as it blows up. Yeah. Like they're actually doing the stunt, the explosion in front of them. So that's how gritty it was. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, there are words I can't even fathom. Like you just have to see it. You just have, if you've never seen this movie, please, for the love of God, I mean, you got to get through the first two thirds of it and your mileage is going to vary depending on, you know, Get we, through. Us, we love it what well, i'm saying we love it but for some people it'll probably be tougher to get through listen think, think of it this great, way though Nick. but it's worth think it, of it this way it's worth it to get to this final action set piece because even if you even if you just watch this by itself like even out of context it's just the most absolutely insane like just urban warfare movie type thing that you've ever seen but it's played almost half for laughs. So you're laughing like all the action is like, it's serious. It's great. It's punchy. It's amazing. But you're also just like, you're falling over yourself. There's so many emotions racing even through my mind right now, or even when I was watching it earlier, like it's just, it's, it's incredible. It is legitimately incredible. It's like easily one of the greatest action finales of any film ever fucking made. Literally, well, we ever. might as well get to it then, Nick. We might as well get to it then, and then we'll, we'll yeah. do our close and it's out with our... by the greatest final yes. showdown in cinema history. We know that this is the moment for you, as my boy, as my podcast partner, as my partner in crime. When you saw this, I remember the text I got from this, and you're like, Oh my god, he blows him through the fucking wall with a bazooka at close range! Like, you couldn't believe that anyone would ever do that. Ever. Oh my fucking god. It is the most amazing thing ever. Seriously. In any action movie. And it has been. Make no mistake, it has been replicated. Well, that's the great thing about it too. So many times since then. They dedicate screen time to this to to Bronson getting this basically bazooka. They dedicate screen time to him getting this weapon, but this whole time, literally this entire action set piece, when there are so many explosions, so much gunfire, so much craziness going on, but you never see this thing. So the first time I ever watched this movie, I'm sitting there and I'm watching, I'm like, wait a minute, what happened to that like anti-tank? It's like an anti-tank gun, basically. It, like it, you're like where is this thing like what, what what happens to this thing and then you know fraker goes to confront because he's running back to the apartment to reload his ammo and everything fraker goes to confront him and they get up there and you know they shoot him and and, and there's this whole sequence and then fraker gets back up and you're like oh man he's wearing a bulletproof vest what's gonna happen and then you don't even see it in the shot until then at least i don't see it maybe it's, it's there. like in the corner it's hidden in it's the like corner hidden you can kind of see the top of, of it yeah. he just fucking pulls it out of nowhere it just aims it and fucking <laughs> just blows like launches him straight <laughs> oh, out the fucking window with a fucking bazooka around it's i mean it's the only the only thing that's like 
funny about it if you think about it contextually it's like the gang members all freak out when it happens but they could not possibly know that that charred corpse is Fraker by the time it gets out. <laughs> no no wait a minute they probably saw the bihawk the, the, <laughs> the we didn't see survived. the shot that was they saw the bihawk with the fucking bleach blonde hair oh it's him it was just the bihawk flying out the window yeah. that, that that sold it for for Loisos, you were holding your breath there. You had something to say during that. I could tell. Well, well, not only is is the buildup and the resulting explosion amazing, but it's the look of unmitigated terror <laughs> on Fraker's face that really sells it. It's, it's, that, it's that random insert shot of him with... Oh my! Just please watch this fucking movie if you've never seen it. And the camera zooming in on it too. Like this movie is full of weird, like bizarre close-ups, bizarre zooms. There's a part where uh, Paul Kersey and uh, Bennett are looking out the window together, and all of a sudden the camera just like zooms into the curtains, and I'm like, <laughs> "What inspired this choice? It's so bizarre." <laughs> that shot. A Fraker realizing that he done fucked up (laughs) and he's about to be blown into a million bits is so amazing that the it's almost like the orgasm. It's like 25 minutes of foreplay of the. Oh my God, you're going there. I was about to throw it your way, but I didn't want to get that sexual. But at some point, the buildup, the buildup, it's hard. It gets harder. It's even harder. This ending is so amazing that they they ripped it off in the Death Wish remake by Eli Roth. They literally used this exact same gag. Don't get me mad. Don't even (laughs) dare with this. I want to go to bed happy after this. You're really going to bring that up? Seriously, you're going to do that to me? You didn't have to see it. I watched it. But anyway, yes, but it can never be replicated because it is the best possible way to end a movie. And right after that, they don't even bother with a a denouement. They don't even bother with an ending scene. Paul Kersey just walks away scot-free. Yep. It's just even though he one of my favorite things about the ending of this movie is the end shot of him nonchalantly walking away from all of the goons he murdered brutally with his suitcases in hand. It's fucking priceless. Now, don't mention that this ending could not be redone because Nick has not seen Death Wish 4. And Death Wish 4's ending is, I'd argue to say, just as iconic, very similar mm. fashion. Nick needs to see it. It's hopefully still it's also a canon movie. It's still a yeah, Hopefully you guys up. vote for it. And we've learned from this episode, if you don't vote for it, we're going to say... Fuck y'all! We'll pull the veto card and we'll do it anyway. Eventually, yeah. and and we'll and we'll give it to you. Again, because this was we know a special. Really anyway. This was a special week. We had to do something really, really special. You know, f- just for whatever. Just just because we're we're right now we're doing live stream for the cure. When you're listening to this, most likely. So it's just I wanted to do something really, really special. I know how much the three of us absolutely adore this movie. I know how much fun it was going to be to discuss this movie and. The most important thing, if you listen through this whole thing and you've never seen this movie, please, if you've never listened to a recommendation that we've ever given before, and if you don't ever listen to one after this, please, for the love of God, watch Death Wish 3. It is incredible. Incredible. In the span span of 92 minutes, 
83 people are murdered. 83 deaths in this movie. That's right. It is the very definition of preposterous 80s excess. So really the only thing left to do right now as we record this, the entire Death Wish series, one through five, is available to watch on Amazon Prime Video. All you need to do, ladies and gentlemen, is pour yourself a liberal amount of alcoholic beverage and just enjoy. <laughs> just watch through these movies and enjoy because I, I well, promise. Well, well, give, well, give them a warning. You ha- Listen here, Mr. Film Expert. Give them a warning on the first two movies. Well, okay, here's the, yeah, but as, then, I, as but I mentioned but, 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 at the But very after top, three, then they can just like, oh, I'm going to take shots every time someone gets murdered here. As I mentioned at the top, Death Wish, the original, is this very uh, gritty and somber film. Yeah. Death Wish 2, a scuzzier remake, arguably, of the first film. Death Wish it's 3. straight up a remake of the first movie. I don't care what anybody Death says. Wish 3, cinematic nirvana. It, it's true. That's perfect. So that's... I mean, ladies and gentlemen, that is, I mean, if you want to talk about films that are iconic to this show, to to Justin especially, because I know that he's he's such a huge Bronson fan. He's got Bronson tattooed on his goddamn leg. Like, I mean, this is one of the one of the big daddies of them all. So that's why, I mean, while we do hashtag canon quarantine, there was no way that this film could not come up. And there's no way we couldn't talk about this film. What a treat this was to revisit it again. Uh, I hadn't seen it since we did Bronsember. I mean, granted, I've rewatched the clips of don't lie. the final battle. Don't lie, motherfucker. Of- You're lying. What? You're lying. You're lying. Because when I came up after Bronsember, well, you besides put it on that, that doesn't we, that doesn't we, we were wasted. we weren't paying attention to it though. We were we were drinking while it was just kind of playing around in the background. But I mean, really turned it on and just watched it and enjoyed it. Well, that's I think it's the perfect party movie, honestly, especially for people that love '80s action movies. As where you were going, just think about if you go to a party, to. everybody gets blasted for an hour, just drinks and just has a good time. And then for 25 minutes at the end of the movie, you're all just fucking cheering and laughing and clapping and just having the absolute best and time. And Bronson mows down people of all shapes and sizes of all different races, black, white, Hispanic. Asian, fat, skinny, muscular, everyone gets murdered. He so. doesn't discriminate. He doesn't <laughs> discriminate. <laughs> He's a non-discriminatory. Everybody gets murderer. mowed down by that goddamn machine gun. So uh that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. That's Death Wish Three. I know we've been ever since we started talking about Canon Quarantine, I know that we, we've all been really, really excited for us to get to this point. And not that we don't have some other real gems, I'm sure, out there in the Canon Canon, but this was a special one. This was a really, really special one, and that's why we decided to do it today, just because we wanted to. We really wanted to. And if I have to suffer through more movies like King Solomon's Mines, then I get to balance it out with things like Death Wish 3. <laughs> you do, Nick. And real quick, but while we end this segment, I really want to give a huge shout out to my friend, peer, colleague, and guy that got me even deeper into Bronson lore, Mr. Paul Talbot. Thank you. said it perfectly at the beginning of this episode. He's a huge film historian and the biggest Bronson film historian on the planet if you have not checked out his books if you've listened to this episode and you're like i want to check out bronson's movies if you're new to it and then you watch through them and you want to know about the history of it or if you're a big bronson buff and you checked out this episode and you really enjoyed it either way check out both of his books bronson's loose the making of the death wish films and then bronson's loose again which touches on 
all of the movies that Charles Bronson made in the 80s with Canon. So many great interviews, so many different pieces of uh, things we would love to have included on this show. But I really didn't want to step on his toes. It's his work. It's the stuff that he did, you know, so yeah, go buy the books. We did, please. we did what we could, but buy the books. They're extremely cheap and they're, they come in hard cover and on soft cover. I own both of them. And as Loisos said perfectly, not only did he do an amazing intro Loisos for our death wish three film club screening. He also did an amazing screening for, he did the intro for 10 to midnight, which uh, I hope to God comes up on this Canon quarantine series, because that's one of my favorites too. And Paul Talbot's commentary tracks as well. The shout factory special edition of death wish two and the double feature, uh, I believe it's Australian release, Umbrella Entertainment release, Death Wish 4 and 5, double feature, Paul Talbot's commentaries on those as well. Outstanding. He's peerless. We love Paul Talbot on this show. And and, and, and I'm going to say this. I'm sure he's fine with this. This is a little bit of a teaser. If you're listening to this now, he contacted me earlier. No full information, but there's something very special regarding Death Wish 3 coming regarding him soon. He told me for you guys to be excited about this. He's doing it this week. So fans of Bronson, be excited. There's a lot more to come as far as home video is concerned. The mechanic, the new version of that 2K restoration coming next month with his commentary as well. But yes, I have permission, Loisos. Don't give me that frown. Uh, me and Paul are close. So give him some love. Buy those books. Listen, and we hope you enjoy and watch. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for another episode of the Epic Film Guys podcast and another installment in our hashtag Canon Quarantine series. Now, the next film up for choice in the Canon Quarantine will be decided by you guys. Check for the poll over in our fan group, the Hopesters Dumpster, that's over on Facebook.com slash groups slash epic film guys please head over there and and make sure that you make your voice heard if you want to make us suffer through more garbage like king solomon's minds or if you want to bless us with another masterpiece like a death wish 3 or you know break into electric boogaloo or ninja 3 the domination i mean man you liked cobra too don't be hating you cobra liked was cobra, cobra was fine you like cobra's, cobra's middling it. canon fair to me it's gonna fall somewhere in the middle like by the time it's all said and done really really well but ladies and gentlemen if you're listening to this again on release day live stream for the cure is most likely live on the air right now at twitch.tv slash epic film guys please head over there please make a donation toward cancer research for a future immune to cancer 100 percent of proceeds go to the cancer research institute we really 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 hope that you will come out and support the event 48 hours of live content from content creators around the world it's going to be absolutely amazing we got a lot of podcast friends returning and a lot of new faces that are going to be showing up this year for the first time that have never been part of it before so we have a little bit of something for everybody uh it's it's really like there's there's content varied all the way across literally any spectrum gaming we're gonna be doing some readings from some 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 plays with Melissa from Brook Reading, we're going to be doing a lot, a lot, a lot of different stuff, giving away tons and tons of prizes. I have a whole stack of prizes that we're going to be giving away sitting next to me. We're going to be giving away other prizes and whatnot for donations. It's just going to be an absolutely amazing time. We always have a great time doing it, and it's all to raise money for a really, really good cause. So please make sure that you come out and support the event. Loy Sauce, what's coming up? Can you give us a little tiny sneak of what might be coming oh, no. on Monday 
on the Monday episode following the live stream for The Cure, June 1st. What do we got coming? We're here. <laughs> so there you go, ladies and gentlemen. So look forward for that the day after the live stream for The Cure on June 1st. And then, of course, hashtag canon quarantine will continue next Thursday on the Epic Film Guys. Please tune in. Find us everywhere out there on the web. Every single podcatcher under the sun, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blueberry, Google Podcasts, all the other podcatchers, whatever else is out there. Justin's got this really weird look on his face right now. I think he wants to go watch Bronson mow a whole bunch of bad guys down, so he's trying to get I'm out of I'm about to watch Death Wish 4 after this shit. I love you guys. This is so good. This is so great. I'm so happy that we finally got to appreciate and celebrate not only one of my favorite films, but one of my favorite Hollywood actors of all time. So thank you so, so much. And until next time, if, if, if again, if you're interested, we've got a wide variety, a huge library of movies. Huge. I've been telling people this all over social media. You think of a certain kind of movie you're interested in. We've probably talked about it on this show already. So dig deep into the archives Almost and jump certainly. in. Yeah. So head Epic back if you haven't tuned in yet. Maybe. Check out the Braveheart retrospective I did with Paul from the countdown that came out earlier this week also the retrospective god in heaven battlefield 20 years earth. of battlefield earth which wow just go listen to that i did that one with brad from the cinema guys and coming up in june we've got anniversaries for batman forever riddle me this riddle me that and justin i am uh, your weapons. Yeah, that's happened oh. as well. We, there's also another anniversary secret that Loisos and I are covering. So we've got so much content coming for you guys. We're not stopping. We're not slowing down because of COVID. We're only going further. We're breaking down boundaries. We're going to blow this shit up like the dynamite used in Death Wish 3. We're going to blow people away, blow them apart, but uh, politically correct in, in a way because we don't want you to be that offended. <laughs> Thank you so much. Look at Lois Huss's face. Everybody out there for listening, you guys are absolutely amazing. We love each and every single one of you. If you're listening again on release day, go tune in to live stream for The Cure. Uh, Twitch.tv slash Epic Film, guys. Tune in, donate. It's going to be absolutely amazing time for myself, for Justin, and for the god of podcasting. Now you're going to die. Thank you so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time. Hey, all you motherfuckers out there, y'all be sucking my dick if I want you to. I'm the homester. And I think I'm about to go harass Moises to get me a couple double cheese, because guess what? Even though they're closed, they still got the drive through Double cheese on my dick. At the movies.
Does that mean you're going to take me to McDonald's? Oh, God. Bitches can't get enough of my stuff. 